So if you have a background in, in business, or even if you, you don't, you probably know how most businesses have a vision statement and a mission statement. You know, even hope on the back of our bulletin, you see hope's vision and mission statement. And so a vision statement, if you say, well, what is a vision statement? It's the, the big picture of what you want to achieve. And the mission statement is then how you will go about achieving that vision. And so here are some examples of vision and mission statements that I pulled off offline. So LinkedIn, the vision, the big picture of what they want to accomplish, uh, to create econop economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And then the mission, how they accomplish it, uh, to connect the world's professionals and to make them more productive and successful. Or Google, the vision, the big picture of what they want to accomplish, to provide access to the world's information in one click. The mission, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. IKEA, to create a better everyday life for many people. That's the, the vision. The mission, to offer a wide range of well-designed functional home furnishings and products priced so low that many people as possible will be able to afford them. And so you get this idea of the, the vision and the mission. What's the goal? How are you accomplishing it? And, and you think about the, the ministry of Jesus and you think, well, did he have a, a vision and a mission? And I'm, and I'm not trying to be gimmicky or say, yeah, he had, in a modern sense that he had a, a vision and mission statement, that there's so many passages in scripture that speak to his vision and mission. It's not just one. But if a, a vision statement is this big picture of what you want to achieve, the mission is how you're going to achieve that vision, then really if you look at your Bible, if you open back to Luke 12 and look at verse 49 and 50, that we see this beautiful summary of Christ's vision and mission. So you say, well, what's the, the vision? He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. So what's his mis mission? I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And so today we're going to look at those, those two statements individually, and then in the rest of the passage, flowing out of that are really three responses to Christ's vision and his mission. And so first, let's look at Christ's vision. Verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already accomplished. And so you say, well, what is Christ's vision? Well, he says that it's to cast fire on the earth. But you say, well, what does that mean? Well, I think that it has really two senses to it. That, that one is that, that Christ's vision is to cast of the fire of judgment on the earth. Because if you read the Bible, this, this image of fire is, is common throughout Scripture. You can think of, in the Old Testament, the fire of judgment coming down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you can think of John the Baptist when, when he's talking about uh, the calling people to repentance, the condition of Israel. He says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, fire is this image of judgment in Luke 3.9. Or the Apostle Peter, the great leader of the church, and the, he says, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so again, it's this picture of day of judgment, fire on the earth. 
Now, this, if you, if you were to say, well, what's the vision of, of Jesus? I think that, that sometimes this may not be what people would expect for, from Jesus to say that, you know, this is what he's, he's, he's longing for. Would that it were already accomplished? Because the, the popular image of Jesus is so often just a soft-spoken guy who wouldn't hurt a fly. And there's definitely an element of truth about that in the ministry of Jesus. But, but it's not the whole picture. Because if he is also the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the, the one who, as we, we say every week in the Apostles' Creed, that he's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And, and the Bible says that he's going to tread the winepress of the wrath of God, that, that, he's, that his, his vision is to bring actually judgment on the earth, ultimately, especially in terms of his second coming. But there's another sense of this fire that, yeah, it's the fire of judgment, but it's also a, a fire of purification. Because you, if you think about it, fire can do two things at the same time, that, that a fire can both be, can burn up straw while refining gold. And, and in that way, fire actually can be a lot like water, right? Because you can, you can take a bath in water and, and it can cleanse your body, or you can be drowned in a flood, right? That both of those are possibilities from water. You can think of the great flood of back with Noah where it, it destroyed everything except those who were on the ark. But then you can think of baptism as a symbol of, of the cleansing of water as well. And so there, again, there's this connection of, of judgment and, and cleansing together. And, and this is what, what John the Baptist was talking about when he was describing the ministry of Jesus back in Luke 3.16. He says, I baptize you with water, so this, this cleansing of water, but he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so this is again talking about the, the, the cleansing work of, of Jesus in judgment, and, and of course, on the, the day of Pentecost, when, when God really launched the, the church after he ascended into heaven, it was the, the Holy Spirit that descended in, in tongues of fire on the people who were present. And it wasn't fire of judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was the fire of the, the Holy Spirit, of purification, of being sent out on mission with the gospel, flowing out of Christ's vision for the future. And so that's Christ's vision then to cast fire on the earth, both of judgment and purification. But now let's look at that second verse there, verse 50, at, at Christ's mission, how it is that he intends to accomplish this vision. And this is where, where Christianity is, is so surprising, because you might think, well, I always knew that, that Christians talk a lot about judgment and fire and you know, now that I'm in church and I'm, I'm reading the Bible, that this is exactly what's here. It's just, it's fire and brimstone. It's to, to scare people with uh, judgment in the future. But that's missing the, the mission of Jesus. Because look at verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So you think, well, what, is, what does he mean, I have a baptism to be baptized with? That, that he's saying that, that his, his vision for the future is to bring God's judgment on the earth. But first, 
before that future vision can be accomplished, that he himself must undergo that same judgment, that same baptism, that same fire, both of judgment and purification. And, that, and that's really what the cross is all about. That's why the cross is the, is the center of Christianity. That's the center of his mission. Because he took upon himself the, all of the, the fire of, of judgment, um, not because he had done anything wrong, but because we had done something wrong. And it was the, the punishment in our place. But again, you think of a crucible that you, you, it purifies the gold or the, or the silver, that when Jesus passed through the, the refining fire of God's judgment, burning away all of the, the chaff of our sin that was laid upon him, that, that what emerged from that fire of judgment on the cross was this pure, refined gold of resurrection life. That that's what Easter is about. It's the, the gold of resurrection life coming out that, that the fire of judgment could not consume him because of who he was. And so that's then the, the promise of, of how the mission of Jesus and how we fit into it, that when, when we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, that we are united to him, we're, we're connected to Jesus. And so then with him, we go into the, the fire. The Bible says that we were crucified with Christ, that, that our sin and all of our impurity is, is, is burned away on the cross, buried in the tomb. And then when we face the judgment, the final day, that we come through with Jesus then as the refined gold of resurrection life. The Bible says resurrection bodies like his resurrection body, that that's our, our hope and, and our promise. And so that's the, the vision and mission of, of Jesus here in these, these two verses. But as I said, Flowing out of this, Jesus begins to, to outline responses to this vision and mission. How, what, what is going to happen before this vision is accomplished? What is go the world going to be like? And he gives, it's, it's not a positive responses that he shows, but actually these three negative responses, these three applications of his vision and mission in the world. So let's look at the, the first response then in verse 51, the first response to his vision and mission. Jesus says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? And I think if you were to, to take this question out onto a, a Christian conference, the floor of a Christian conference, or if you were to take it to a Christian concert and just go up to somebody with a microphone and say, question, did Jesus come to bring peace on earth? that I think everybody would say, yeah, that's why Jesus came. And, and you say, could you cite scripture on why it is that Jesus came to give peace on earth? That the people would say, well, he's called the Prince of Peace in scripture. Uh, when, when the angels announced his birth, they, they said, peace on earth, a goodwill among men. In Ephesians 2.17, uh, the apostle Paul says that Jesus came and preached peace. Uh, we talk about shalom, we talk about peace. Um, that peace is such an important concept in the Bible. So yeah, Jesus came to bring peace. But peace in what sense? Because look at how Jesus answers 
his own question in verse 51. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Was that my vision and mission? Well, no. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. If you know the, the movie uh, Miss Congeniality, or now I can say it, Miss Congeniality, um, that one of the, the lines in that is world peace, that if you're asked, what do you want for the world, you just always say world peace. Um, and, and I think that that is something that, that we desire, that you know, what do we want for the future? We want world peace. And, and that also is something that, that Jesus wants, but it, it's not this kind of simplistic view of world peace, this kind of worldly peace, just in, in the temporary here and now. Uh, but he was interested rather in this divine peace um, in, in the future. And I think, though, that, that the fact that worldly peace isn't possible in, in this life has just been borne out over and over again in history. So even just take the 2,000 years of church history and think of all of the division that has f flowed out of the vision and mission of Christ in the world. So you think first century, originally Christianity saw itself as part of Judaism. There was a division between Jew and Christian. The Middle Ages, there is um, a division in the church between East and West, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. In the uh, 16th century, there was division then in the Roman Catholic Church between Protestant and Roman Catholic. Then Protestant Church divided into three streams soon after that of Reformed and Lutheran and Anabaptist because of fundamental disagreements about theology. The 20th century, all of the Protestant streams divided again into evangelical and, and mainline. So the division is continued over and over again. And as I was looking at this this week, I, I went on just a Wikipedia list of denominations in North America, and I just went down the list and, and counted. And this is what I count for denominations in America. Uh, 41 Presbyterian denominations, 38 Lutheran denominations, 21 Anglican denominations, 24 Methodist denominations, over 100 Baptist denominations. And then, you know, I'm not sure where non-denominational would fit in that, but, I mean, there are churches that still divide or, for one other reason, not part of the other groups. And so there is, you know, division in church history, division in the church. And some of those you could say, well, what's the source of division? How important is it? But still, there, we can see this division in the church flowing out of the, the vision and mission of Christ. But we also see it in families, that this is what Jesus is describing here. He's saying that in one family, because of the, the ministry of the gospel, that the most fundamental family units can be ripped apart. Father, son, daughter, mother, etc. And I think that this is really hard for us to understand in an individualistic kind of Western context. Well, we see people dividing from parents and, and family all the time. Uh, we move far away from our family. We don't necessarily always care what our family thinks. But if you just put yourself in the place of an ancient 
Near Eastern person where the, the family unit, honoring your family unit was one of the prime responsibilities, um, that would be a maintained as a value almost above every other value. And that Jesus is saying, no, even this important, God or the family is God-ordained. God loves a family. We need strong families. But he's saying that the, the, the gospel, the vision and mission of Christ coming forward will even bring divisions into families. And I, I know so many examples of families being divided because of theological differences um, and or different religions within one family. I knew a woman who had grown up in a Muslim context overseas, and she converted to Christianity, and, and because of, of that, that, the, that community, she would be killed by her family. They had a responsibility to kill her if they ever saw her. And so, you know, she still has to keep a really small social media presence and everything because of her family, that, that it divided her family. Um, or you can think of the way that also that the gospel has brought division into, into nations, whether religious wars or uh, religious conflict in, in Northern Ireland, um, or culture wars in, in America on almost any social issue, you can see division and people with different religious views lining up, not being able to agree. And so I say all of this to, to ask then, has the, the vision and mission of Christ failed? Does this division actually disprove Christianity? Because, well, there's all of this division. Maybe it's not true. If, if, if what Jesus did and said is, is the most important, significant uh, work in all of human history, then why would there be so much flowing out of it that seems so negative, so divisive, so violent? And maybe that's even where some of you are, some of your friends are, of saying, I don't want anything to do with Christianity or with Protestantism or with religion in general because of the division. But I think that, that it's important to, to remember a couple of things. Um, and, and I think that J.C. Ryle, this 19th century pastor, states this, this really well as we think about the division that we see in the church. He says, let us beware of unscriptural expectations. If we expect to see people of one heart and mind before they are converted, we shall continually be disappointed. Thousands of well-meaning people nowadays are continually crying out for more unity among Christians. To attain this, they are ready to sacrifice almost anything, to throw overboard even sound doctrine, if, by so doing, they can secure peace. Such people would do well to remember that even gold may be brought, bought too dear, and that peace is useless if purchased at the expense of truth. Surely they have forgotten the words of Christ, I came not to send peace, but division. And so I think that, that what Ryle is saying here is, is right, that we shouldn't go out of our way to be divisive. We should seek Christian peace, Christian unity, uh, to, be, to be one in Christ, in, in the gospel, in truth. But yet, at the same time, we're not surprised by division. We're not surprised by the way that Christianity has played out over 2,000 years because, actually, Christ predicted the division. <laughs> that, that he said that, that 
as the vision and, and mission of the gospel goes out, that it's going to divide families, re relationships in, in this life. And so, so the, the calling is, yes, to work for, for unity, but not at the expense of, of truth, the, the truth of who Christ is, what he is going to accomplish. And so that's then the, this first response to Christ's vision and mission, this division. But then there's another response that, that Christ outlines here in verse 45, if you look there in your Bible. Jesus said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. And so Jesus is saying, people are pretty good at predicting the weather. They can look at the signs of which way the wind is blowing, and they can, they can know what's going to happen. And of course, with modern science, we still mock the weather channel and their inability to predict the weather. But it's still, it's pretty good. I mean, to, and, and it's only improved that, that there are certain signs we can guess the weather quite often. But Jesus is saying that we're pretty good at, at reading the, the weather, but we're terrible at reading spiritual reality. And if you look at verse 56, he says, You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. And you look at that phrase, interpret the, the present time. You think, what does that mean? And you think of, well, what are examples of, of people who seriously misinterpreted their present time? And I, I was uh, listening to some about the Cold War this past week, and, but they were talking about um, Neville Chamberlain before World War II when he, when he came back from his meeting with Adolf Hitler in 1938, um, just he, waving the piece of paper saying, peace for our time. And then, of course, then after World War II broke out, that everybody just mocked him for seriously misreading his time. But then you could contrast that with somebody like Winston Churchill, where people said he's divisive. He's dividing people. He, he's a warmonger. But yet he was actually reading the present time more accurately um, and actually seeing what was coming down the pike. But unfortunately, I think that when we are interpreting the present time, that we can actually be a lot more like Chamberlain. <laughs> we misread what is actually happening in the world and in our lives. And so on the one hand, we can read the present time and be far too optimistic. That we say, everything is great. We ourselves kind of wave the piece of paper saying, peace for our time. Or we become overly pessimistic and we say, everything is hopeless, everything is pointless, I'm just going to to give up, why even try? And so the, the solution then for this either pessimism or, or optimism is to just hold so tightly onto the vision and the mission of Christ that is certain that will be accomplished. Because when we have the, the vision and mission of Christ at the center of our lives, then we're not surprised by troubles in the world, we're not surprised by wars, we're not surprised by violence, we're not surprised by coronavirus or religious conflict or greed or whatever else we see in the world. And we know that our hope ultimately isn't in this life, that our hope isn't in politics or psychology or social reform. Again, not that those things don't have value or that Christians shouldn't pursue them, 
but they're not the ultimate grounds of hope, what we're looking for. It's not our ultimate vision for the future. Our ultimate vision and mission here ourselves is not just to, to, to create a utopia in the here and now, but actually to look to Christ who, who went through the fire of, of judgment for us. And so we look, we've seen then our, these two responses to Christ's vision and mission. Now let's look at this third and final response. In verse 57, Jesus says, And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go to your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison, I tell you you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And so here Jesus hasn't changed the subject. At first it feels like he's, he's maybe talking about something different. But, it, but he's using this parable. He's saying that if, if you're going to be dragged before a judge and you're being accused of something, that there can be an advantage to settle out of court before you actually get to the judge. Because if you wait, if you delay, again, if you misread the, the present time and, you, and you, the present predicament, uh, that you could end up in a very bad place of, of facing judgment before a just judge. And so this is what Jesus is saying, that as we, as we think about the vision of casting fire on the earth, his mission of the fact that he took that judgment for us, that, that our response to that is not to to delay, to wait, to say that, that we're fine uh, the way we are, but actually to uh, settle out of court with the judge of the universe. And, and, to, and we were able to do that because of what, what Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, because we, when we were talking about the mission of Jesus, we said that, that he had a baptism to be baptized with, that, that he went into the, the fire of God's judgment for us. And this meal here is a picture of that. Jesus going into the fire of judgment for us, his, his body being broken, his blood being shed. And he did it so that, that we can be united to him through faith, that we can pass through it with him. And so this meal is a, it's a symbol of union with Christ because it's saying that this, his body, his blood is coming into us, becoming ours. We're with him. And then with Jesus in our life, we're passing through the fire uh, into to new life is our ultimate hope.